Happy New Year. It's Three Point Range 2021 version. I'm Mike Berardino, along with Kimball Crossley. Happy New Year! It's what you got to say, Tim Crothers. I'm just here so I won't get fined. I do. I would like to just open with a quick thought. Uh, how far into the new year do you give yourself to make that you know automatic when you greet anyone for the first time? Is it one week? Is it ten days? Is it already pushing the envelope? I think uh, I never say it first, but then I love to come in with a big Happy New Year if they say it. <laughs> I feel like uh, first, like uh, almost through this first week now. The first, this this opens the full work week or whatever you know you come across people I, I think i'll be doing it all week until the point where the, maybe the first time a person comments negatively you know well okay let's move on or whatever then then i'll just drop it so uh this is the show where we have a point each and uh that's why it's three point range and we talk about sports topics you don't get anywhere else i think or that you don't hear discussed or you wish were discussed and kimball crossley would like to lead off Mike, you always say Happy New Year, but you're not having a Happy New Year. Happy, happy New, New Year. Year! All right, so Happy New Year to the New York Jets. After watching that weekend of football, I'm going to tie it all in together with my beloved Jets. And, and you know, I watch – you know, I'm not a big college football guy. I think it's interesting sometimes to watch these guys that people are talking about going to the NFL. And, of course, boy, did we have that for our bowl semifinal uh, football weekend we had that in spades and i just want to say well here we go this is why i don't believe in the quarterback savior because every quarterback in the world when they're under siege looks awful even the amazing trevor lawrence the generational once in a generation quarterback oh my god he's so good yeah He's out there fumbling and stumbling and looking like a bum when people are in his face and he's down by a cut touchdown or two, just like every quarterback ever. So he's not the answer. And so it's good that the Jets didn't get the number one pick, or he might be the answer. That's the point. It's like if you surround him with the right stuff, and these major college quarterbacks are all just so surrounded by great stuff that they put up these amazing numbers and they look so amazing. But it's hard to evaluate them until they get, you know, into a real situation where they're like playing football like the other quarterbacks have to do it with with people in their face and not the best running game and not the best line and not the best defense. And I'm just sick of all these guys, the Matt Leinerts and the Sam Darnolds. Everyone thinks it's going to be great. We don't know. And now it's Justin Fields because he was on the winning side of that. And so now he looks great. And I'm just not buying it. I mean, like Mac Jones is a great example. Like how many great Alabama quarterbacks have there been? But they all look great when they're just like sitting back there and like every once in a while they drop back and throw a pass to a guy that's five yards behind the secondary and they look amazing. So I'm not worried about the Jets quarterback situation. As bad as slinging Sammy Darnold looks, I still say fine. You know, take your second-round pick. Hey, draft that Alabama wide receiver. Now, he looked good, okay? And, like, you can judge him better in space when he's, like, evading guys and his quickness and his length and his ability to catch the ball. You know, he's not sitting back there, like, all protected and everything. So I think the Jets are going to be fine. 
whatever they do, if they, if they want to trade Darnold and, and start with the better salary quarterback, that's fine. But don't go crazy and don't think that this guy's going to be the savior because the quarterback is not the savior. It's a chicken and the egg situation. The team saves the quarterback. Now Josh Allen looks like a star because he's got a great team around him. But a couple years ago, everyone thought he was crap. You can just list all the guys on and on. And I'd be very curious to you guys that are more into the college football and all that. Uh, I know Jim Sirwicki is not a big Justin Fields guy because of his mechanics, and now everyone's jumping on him. <laughs> what do you guys think? Like, do you guys agree, disagree? Tell me what you think. Well, I, I think as a Dolphins follower, I can't name more than about eight guys, maybe six right now. But, I mean, uh, I thought it was actually – beneficial to them in the long run that they not only miss the playoffs, but that they're, they're going to pick third now and that they'll have another chance at a quarterback uh, if necessary, or the, the Oregon lineman Sewell, who's a generational lineman, supposedly <laughs> Penne Sewell, I guess. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, just uh, for multiple years, people were talking about tanking for Tua. And like we've, you've said, I mean, what, what is Tua Tagovailoa right now? than a guy who needs more development and more protection. But um, Justin Herbert supposedly was, was robotic and stiff, and then he throws for all that yardage. Um, but um, I, I, did you guys happen to notice Urban Meyer uh, watching that game, uh, that, that blowout Ohio State win over Clemson from the, it looked like, the upper deck of the stands, and he, he never looks too happy. But he's about to take that Jacksonville job, supposedly because of Trevor Lawrence's generational possibilities and about ten million a year, and um, you know he had his choice of jobs. Could have stayed in college and gone to Texas, but something about Trevor Lawrence, especially, uh, was attractive to him with a one-win Jacksonville team that uh, pops up once every decade or so and is uh, good, and then goes right back into its hole. So I, I, I don't know. The people who know football the best seem to sure seem to lock in on that quarterback when he comes along and and insists that uh you know that that it can be an entire franchise changer if if you have the right person they always talk about the the tone that quarterback is supposed to set and he and he's the fate obviously he's the face of the franchise right along with the head coach he's in front of the cameras all the time if he's petulant if he's uh if he's not impressive in some way um if he doesn't uh, spread hope and faith among the fan base, then that that uh, that's a setback too. So the ones who have the whole package, the total package, um, they get the hundred million dollars. The whole thing brings me back to uh, one of my favorite thirty for thirties, which is the uh, the the draft back in I guess it was nineteen eighty three or something like 83, that. Eighty three, yeah, yeah, and uh, and thinking about the the fact that. Not far before, if not the previous pick to Dan Marina was was um, I'm sure somebody Kimball was very excited about at the time, Kenny O'Brien, and uh, it it just sh- it just shows to me that um, Kenny O'Brien was drafted by the Jets. The Jets sucked, and he never was able to really pull it pull much together. Um, Marina was drafted shortly thereafter, if not immediately thereafter, by the Dolphins, who um, immediately. Or quickly fought, surrounded him with excellent players, and uh, and Dan Marino becomes a Hall of Famer. So, I, I think I, I'm I don't think Kimball's point is 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 uh, arguable. I mean, I think there's 
I agree with it completely. It's it's a matter of of the talent that you're surrounding these players with, and uh, I, I I don't blame any of these quarterbacks for for not wanting to be drafted by terrible teams that are that have terrible organizations that don't don't ever seem to be able to get out of their own way. Um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be drafted by the Jets or the Jaguars right now. Although at least at least both teams are going to have new coaching staff, so that might might be of some help. But uh, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, it's not about that, that one guy, one quarterback. I don't think there's a any evidence uh, if, if we go back through history of of uh, one quarterback being drafted to a terrible team and turning them into a Super Bowl ten- contender. It just doesn't happen. Uh I don't know. I, I I do think you've had a few Super Bowl champion quarterbacks that were caretaker types. You you think of uh, Trent Dilfer, um, um, right? But Brad, is that Brad Johnson? But, Trent, but but not these too are many. not guys who were drafted drafted number one or two and onto no. terrible teams and became great um, you know, and turned them into great teams. You can you, we can we can twist this any way we want. One of the things that pops into mind is Ron Wolf, the longtime executive. Uh, of the uh, Packers and the Raiders and, and pro- you know, one of the top five NFL GMs. Uh, it's a, such a mysterious world, the NFL decision-making and talent uh, evaluation, but he believed, and it was quoted ad nauseum that you draft, no matter what your quarterback situation is, you should take one every year, even if it's in the later rounds, just to see if you, if you hit, you might hit on that guy or the guy you believe in completely and think you're set for the next 10 years might collapse on you or he gets hurt or whatever. And so it, it is the most important position in all of sports. And that's why I struggle a little bit with what Kimball's basic thought is that almost saying quarterback doesn't matter unless you have all these other pieces, but the quarterback can somehow elevate other pieces. He can attract. He appears to elevate. They elevate him. Ryan Tannehill, your own boy, Ryan Tannehill. You guys probably would have like kicked him in the butt out the door. And now he's like, Oh, because he's surrounded by good stuff and a coach that knows what he's doing. And he can sit back and make plays. And now he looks like a God. I mean, that's how it works. And look, I'm not saying that anybody can play quarterback, you know, and, and I'm saying, yes, certain guys are obviously better than others, but I think how much they think they're better, how much people think, like, this guy is the answer, it's just so wrong. It's just so wrong. There's lots of really quality, competent guys that can sling the ball around, and if they have time, can make good plays, and if they don't have time, will look like crap, okay? Nick Foles is a great example. Can look like crap, can win a Super Bowl. Which is he, okay? So there's a million guys like that, but so – I just want to, I guess my central point is this, that when we talk about the evaluation, and yes, there's so many things to debate about quarterbacks, but but I've really come to think, you know what we have to really avoid is that quarterback on the powerhouse in college and thinking he's great. Because I really think that the funny thing about all the, the, the qualities that a quarterback needs, and forget the lifting his teammates up, please. I think I think the biggest thing he needs is can you read a defense do you know when that blitz is coming so you don't make that tragic play and you can make a quality play? And, the, and those powerhouse guys don't often have to do that because they're like, oh, yeah, good luck blitzing Alabama, right, with all their studs. Like, they're dictating to you what what they want to do. You know, that's why it's sometimes these interesting smaller college guys that, that had to deal with a lot of crap and are really good at reading and improvising that can do it. 
So, you know, and again, there can be a great guy at a a major college, but I think it's hard to evaluate when you don't see him. And Mark Sanchez is a great example, right? It was easy doing all he had to do at USC, but the biggest flaw he had, and it wasn't mobility, it wasn't his arm, and it wasn't like making good throws. It was he just didn't seem to pick up the blitz and key plays like that, which leads to you being blindsided, which leads to you fumbling, which leads to disasters. There's a randomness to it. There's a randomness to it. I mean, did you watch Patrick Mahomes in any of those 55 to 50 Big 12 games that he was part of and then just think, well, Sam Bradford did all those things and so-and-so did all those things. And then, but here's, uh, yeah. And I think Patrick Andy Mahomes Reed, is probably uh, going to win five Super Bowls at, at this rate. He, he, really, he just takes over, number two first. takes over again. <laughs> takes but, it over. No, he's, he's great. He's amazing. I'm not questioning his, his excellence. But I think that I would guess that Andy Reid didn't just see his arm talent and his leg talent. I think Andy Reid said, you know what? I hear he really also studies and understands schemes and will also be able to do that. I'm guessing. I don't know. I mean, like, I'd love to get more into the NFL world and find out, like, Come on, guys, because they're making monumental mistakes. I mean, they're making gigantic mistakes when they trade up and pay these guys so much and then blow all the resources on one guy. And and when you talk about the Dolphins moving on from Tua, who was their savior just a couple of years ago, right, in the draft, and and now, you know, the Jets may be moving on from Darnold, they, it's like crazy. It's crazy. The best thing that can happen to the Jets is Justin Fields – somehow slays the dragon and they they beat Alabama and win the national championship and Jacksonville of course cannot resist Trevor Lawrence so Justin Fields will still be the second pick in the draft but his stock will have gone through the frigging roof and the Jets trade away Justin Fields for five other good draft picks including one in the sixth round in which they draft Tom Brady <laughs> exactly uh-huh. All right, so uh, point number two will be uh, a little bit different, but um, uh, Paul Westfall passed away at age 70, former uh, NBA, uh, very solid NBA player and uh, and an excellent NBA coach uh, with the Phoenix Suns, known notably for his time with Phoenix. But that name, we've talked about Paul Westhead on this show before, and I'm sure some people, casual casual fans might have, mistaken those two confuse those two but here's why i would never do that because in 1976 i was an eight-year-old boy on a horse farm in south florida lake worth florida and at that time you have to remember there was no professional basketball in south florida the only pro team was the miami dolphins but the nba finals of 76 were tremendous so any of the listeners who might remember those the celtics and the suns that was just an epic uh, finals and Paul Westfall was dominant in it and he was the first player that I took my basketball out to my makeshift hoop uh, on that farm with a goat pen within sight and pretended to be and more moreover uh, my late mother was from Phoenix she had gone to North Phoenix High School so she would watch that series with me and then I made her pretend to be Dave Cowan's <laughs> and then I think back on this, you know, and I wasn't—I was just coming into my sports fandom. I had been to a Dolphins game one time the previous fall, but that seven. And the more I think about it, the '76 NBA Finals hooked me, and um, for a variety of ways. And and there's another story where the 
that triple overtime game that Garfield heard uh, sent to triple overtime. Missed that whole thing because I had thrown some items around the living room, maybe a pillow cushion because the because of Havlicek's uh, driving layup. I thought it was over, and it wasn't because uh, Westfall and uh, and the and the uh, and John McLeod called a timeout they didn't have, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, Paul Westfall. It's nice to see the tributes to him out there. A lot of people saying who knew him, one of the nicest, one of the gentlemen of the game. And he, it's very sad that he would have brain cancer and die at age 70. But um, um, that was the first one uh, that I pretended to be. Now, subsequently, there have been many others that I would attempt to be while shooting hoops alone. You guys, I would challenge you, you could expand it to any sport you want. Um, but who did you pretend to be as youngsters? Go ahead, Gimbal. Mine was, I loved Gail Goodrich. I had a similar man on, on Gail Goodrich, which is so funny because as I started playing more basketball, game, basketball, my game was nothing like that of Gail Goodrich, who was primarily a sniper shooter. And that was the worst thing I did at basketball player. I was all about trying to be more like Magic Johnson and rebound and pass and run the break. But yeah, I loved Gail Goodrich early on. I'd say mine was Walt Clyde Frazier. Mm. Great one. Uh, those, as we've talked about in previous broadcasts, uh, the first basketball, professional basketball games I ever went to were games in the garden, the world's most famous arena with, uh, with the Knicks in their, in their heyday. I was about 10 when they won their last NBA championship and, uh, and Clyde Frazier. I, I was, I was, I think I was like three feet tall then. So I was not much more than a than a point guard and uh i i had to uh i had to idolize a point guard and and uh, clyde frazier was was the epitome of a point guard back then uh, and he could score but but he was he was about facilitating to some pretty darn good players around him just like we were just talking about and uh and i remember an assignment in in high in not high school in grade school um where we were asked to write uh, a story and uh, write a story about our favorite uh, athlete and write a letter to him and and see whether you got a response. And Clyde Frazier wrote wrote me back, sent me a an eight by ten glossy that uh, I was just digging up stuff in the in the uh, basement the other day and came upon it. Uh, and uh, yeah, that definitely solidified my fandom for for Clyde. Um, I probably still would have been a fan either way, but I think it's a great message for um, how, you know, an athlete can can uh, solidify someone's fandom just by um, taking the time. And I'm sure it was purely PR driven, but uh, but he did uh, he did sign the, the photo and uh, it was it was a memory that I still have today. Was he styling and profiling? In that no. uh, letter, was there were there no, a lot of rhymes? He was not, uh, and I do sadly have to admit that I I think Clyde Frazier is one of the worst uh, basketball commentators <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever his 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 uh, commentating definitely has not uh, has not uh, <laughs> backed up his his play, but uh, I find it pretty annoying. He's pretty annoying to listen to, but but it's still Clyde, so I can only I can only trash him so much. But yes, he's. His his style is is a little. I mean, style has always been Clyde's thing. He was big, big fur uh, coats. He was all about the dress. You know, all about the all about the wardrobe. And, you know, uh, 
Yeah. Mike, I know your mom probably struck you at some point, whether it was on the basketball court or off, right? And so I find it interesting that you were struck by her playing Dave Cowens, but I was elbowed by the real Dave Cowens at one point. So I interviewed the real Dave Cowens at some sort of uh, uh, <laughs> old timers game, and uh, it, it, and I, I took some. He, he was he was nice enough fellow. What happened? He elbowed you uh, in, a, <laughs> in, a, in a in a press room or, or in a locker room or what? Uh, the, uh, I, this guy, my friend of my dad's owned the Scotch and Sirloin restaurant near the Boston garden. And, um, Cowens was in there doing a commercial and he introduced me to him. And of course the friend said, you know, here's Kimball Crowsley, you know, he's a big Knicks fan. And so Cowens gave me a little fake elbow. In ah, nice. every, everybody has his faults. So that was my little Dave Cowens moment. Nice. Well, both Cowens and Westfall went on to coach and, uh, and did it pretty well. So, um, I think it's Tim's turn to uh, to close it out. What do you got? All right. Well, let's. I will. I'll try to make an actual point here, just to bring the to tether the tether the program back to back to the to its roots. Um, and let I, I got to begin by saying, <laughs> giving the requisite um, caveat, as it were. Um, in the COVID era, the rules are all different for all sports. So every every point we make, um, in in some ways, ties back to that these days. But hopefully, that won't continue to be the case. Did you just make, think, Did you just make that up? I've not heard that one yet. Kobe, um, I'm that. That's what I do. Um, <laughs> patent pending. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think I honestly think this this point will will be very relevant post COVID as well. Um, it's it's a really a slippery slope in sports, I think, that is just starting to rear its ugly head. And it began back in 2016 with um, college football stars like Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette opting out of their team's postseason bowl games before opting out was even really a part of our sports lingo. And now in the ensuing years, as as we've all seen, uh, more and more players are opting out of these, these bowls. Um, this year, a bunch of teams actually opted out of playing in bowl games, but I think that was actually much more related to COVID than just uh, a desire to to preserve themselves. But but uh, Florida did play, as as we remember, uh, in and they they might as well have opted out of the, the Cotton Bowl because so many of their players skipped it, and uh, they got crushed by Oklahoma. And uh, honestly, as I was watching Clemson get smoked by Ohio State the other night, I was thinking. Trevor Lawrence should have really opted out of the fourth quarter. I mean, I really think that was, as, as Kimball suggested, he was getting uh, he was getting getting uh, rushed from every direction, and he was putting himself in a position of danger that I, I don't know whether it was really worth um, in the in the grand scheme of things. In the near future, I, I think uh, I I think it won't you know opting out won't be exclusive to to just these bowl games that we just watched. But um, I'm thinking, why shouldn't NFL prospects just opt out of the season's final game or two after their team is eliminated from championship contention? I mean, I get the whole loyalty to school, coaches, teammates, yada, yada, yada. But is there really a sound argument against any pro, pro prospect opting out of college games, especially when his team has nothing left to play for? 
Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think Nick, Nick Bosa kind of uh, started that process, the in-season opt-out, and I don't know right. if anyone else has followed, but it was 2018 at Ohio State. I think he had abdominal surgery, and yeah. he was he was going to make it back by the end of the season, but he just said, nope, I'm done. I'm preparing for the draft because he knew he'd be top five pick, and mm-hmm. there will be if there's no loyalty in the direction of the player or the student athlete uh, because their scholarships are all year to year and they can be pulled and and of course uh, it's also another aspect of this that and it's hard to get to but you know the whole Lloyds of London thing and ensuring your future earnings was I believe much more prevalent um, it really reached a crescendo in the 80s but uh, over time that the, all those insurance companies got wise to it and realized that uh, um, it was just too hard to construct it. They, they were losing money on those things, and as the earnings of a of a pro prospect skyrocketed, so these guys they can't insure themselves very often against their future earnings because they don't have enough present value, and obviously they're not making a salary. They're many don't have the ability to pay the premium, whatever. So, um, and I think Kimball could you know expand it. I mean, in, in uh, all all insuring all the ability to insure any athlete has really uh diminished because of rising premiums so that's why the the only option for them is to opt out if they're at all concerned about anything from usage to a nagging injury uh or just uh just 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 afraid of uh losing out on the lottery ticket that they possess my point wasn't actually done yet but is that a can i can i finish oh oh sure go right (laughs) you have two more minutes I was I was just just going to finish up by saying that I think we're we're you know we are we're moving to an era where I as you suggest I mean guys aren't just going to opt out of these bowl games they're going to start opting out of you know more several games toward the end of the season I mean even that that end of the season rivalry game any basically any game that doesn't matter and I and I think all of these non-playoff bowls which you know we all know are irrelevant anyway um, are going to become kind of like glorified spring games. I think people are going to start watching them or using them. Uh, coaches are going to start using them as a chance to to build for the future. And like spring games, the final scores are, are going to be meaningless, which is I, I think is unfortunate. Obviously, I I, I really enjoy watching the bad boy mower bowl, especially if I've got something riding on it. And uh, and but I'm never gonna I'm never gonna blame a player for for opting out. Um, and speaking of which, you know what? I feel like I've, I've made an excellent point here and I've, I've done really well so far in this podcast and there might be some bigger podcasts out there looking to draft me. So guys, I, I'm opting out of the rest of today's podcast. Peace out. <laughs> yeah. I had a feeling that was coming. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think, uh, I pride myself on having solutions to problems when I bring them up. And I want to say that the whole college sports dilemma is one that I've thought about a lot. And they're really, I, it's hard to find a solution. And really what Tim's talking about is, is, you know, this is it, the bigger picture of this, where these guys are undercompensated for what they do and the risk they're, you know, they're the um, product and they're not getting paid like it. But at the same time, you don't, you know, want to pay them. You like it changes so much for college sports and all of college sports and athletics. And I have really tried to think of like, how are we going to solve this one? And I don't think it is solvable. And one day, a bunch of college athletes are going to get together and they've sort of done it already, obviously, in many ways. 
But imagine if, you know, Ohio State and Alabama right before that game said, hey, boys, let's not go out in the field. And now you've got millions and millions of dollars of revenue and you don't you can't really punish them. I mean, like you you can't take away their salaries, you know, and the underclassmen, I guess you could take away their scholarships. But but they're running that risk because because scholarship sports is really so imbalanced in, in who gets the money and who deserves it. Well, the, the I believe the Pac-12 had a group of uh, athletes from maybe all 12 universities, but there were certain leaders within it over the summer that tried to structure. Remember, they had a list of demands yeah. uh, published. It got it, they released it to the media, and it was pretty uh, ambitious, and it really went nowhere. We do have the name, image, and likeness uh, piecemeal state-by-state state, uh developments um california florida of course at the forefront of that but uh you know um it's uh they're trying it, we're, we're we're getting there but the ncaa of course will drag its heels on this they're in no uh hurry to make sure that and, and to how you make it happen is going to be uh, uh the real mystery of it uh the real puzzle uh it's i think we can all pretty much agree that the stars of the game's deserve it but does the four string tackle who uh, doesn't even get in on special teams does he get the same cut as the as the quarterback does the does the quarterback's earnings from uh, his Chili's ads uh, get pooled and then divvied up among everybody it's kind of why you see one of the things I've noticed around college football you know not every as as America has more billionaires uh, right in the top one tenth of one percent controls more wealth if they have even a remotely uh sports able child or relative that person is in demand as a walk-on and uh, and I've, I've always been fascinated and no one has cracked this code yet but there's really nothing to stop the billionaire's relative from effective from effectively spreading the wealth uh serving as a conduit um i'm not going to name the names on here, but uh, there are billionaires out there um, who uh, who would be very useful to a program that wanted to make sure that the stars stayed happy. Now, name, image, and likeness could be tied into the Bulls. Um, it could be one of the ways. Currently, the only way that they try to keep these guys around for the extra month of preparation in the Bowl, because they're done with classes. They prove that once they prove their worth and they see where they are in Todd McShay's big board. They're done with classes, and you can't blame them for that either, I guess. Uh, although I do think the value of completing your degree, there's a, a personal achievement there. And, of course, it's, it's going to set you up for the 50 years beyond your career uh, if you did it right. But um, but Kimball's suggesting maybe I mean, you know, maybe they have to pool to uh, have a set-aside and then name, image, and likeness money. Any time a bowl advertisement on television shows Trevor Lawrence and, and – uh, Justin Fields or whoever the two players are, you know, they, they get their cut, just like Anchor keeps track of all the traffic that we have on our site and makes sure that uh, anytime anybody listens to this show that we're compensated appropriately or not, and it's been very appropriate so far. But, um, yes, they, they're going to have to get – that's the root of the matter. So there's a lot of happy talk around name, image, and likeness and a lot of general speak uh, uh, talking that uh, it's you just have to find a way to make it work and Notre Dame for instance talks about they're going to have uh, people on staff to help the athletes do it in an appropriate 
and and uh, you know a way that that sheds further glory on the athlete and the university. And I think every school is going to have to have people, compliance people within the compliance staff to make sure it gets done right. But right now, all it's waiting for them is I, I believe they gave uh, one of these bowls gave a PlayStation to the players, which is not insignificant. It, it sure beats the gift card to Arby's. So they're getting, you know, maybe five, six, seven hundred dollars worth of stuff when they get as bowl gifts. Other than that, if they have pro potential, it's um, the opt out possibility. What, what other solutions would you have? Oh, Tim opted out, so we can't ask Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're working on his name, image, and likeness uh, treatise right now, so um, uh, we'll we'll be debuting that next time. Well, we made it through the first uh, show. We'd invite you to. I mentioned Anchor. Anchor.fm is how you find this uh, quickly. Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, we have the the uh, uh, Substack that uh, Kimball is really productive on, and sometimes I help edit, and uh, Tim as well. And that's where you can get to know us uh, through uh, Three Point Range, the Substack, the three the uh, Facebook page. And we appreciate everyone with their comments. Give us some more comments. It's a new year. Time for resolutions. We didn't hit you with any of those. Maybe next time. Maybe you can make resolutions for us, how this can be a better show. But um, uh, And I'll, I'll take them to heart. I'll take them to heart. I will, I will try harder if you give me the way forward. For um, Kimball Crossley, for Tim Crothers, this is the show. Happy New Year.